Hey everyone, welcome to the I Dare You podcast. This podcast is all about you and helping you reach the big goals that you have for your life. And what next steps do you want to take to get there? And I'm your host, Darren Johnson. Welcome to episode 102. If this is your first time to the show, you're not alone. A lot of first-time listeners every single week. Uh, welcome to you. And for those who have been here for a while, welcome back. To all of you, I invite you to subscribe to the podcast so that you do not miss an episode. Now, episode 102, we are starting the new year off in style. We're focusing on the right things. We're focusing in on relationships. And Amy Morin is the perfect person to take us there. Preeminent psychotherapist. Perfect guest. She is also a licensed clinical social worker, a college psychology instructor, and of course, psychotherapist. And she also has one of the most popular TED Talks of all time. The Secret of Becoming Mentally Strong was her talk. It has been viewed more than 23 million times. Many of you have already seen it. She also has her own podcast, really great one, very popular, called Mentally Stronger. And her most recent book builds on the tradition, 13 Things Mentally Strong Couples Don't Do. So what can you expect to learn? You're going to get a healthy dose of what mentally strong people don't do and things that mentally strong couples don't do. So now, with that as the setup, I hope you're ready for this. This is a deep dive into relationships like you've never heard before, and I can't wait for you to meet Amy. Let's get into this. Welcome to episode 102. Here, everyone, is Amy Morin. Amy, welcome to the podcast. It is so good having you here. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. So, Amy, uh, you have a, the perfect setup right there. I'm, I'm admiring your microphone, and you've got uh, your books right behind you, your best-selling books. But where where are you right now And as, as we're recording this podcast? So I'm in my living room, but my living room happens to be on a sailboat in the Florida Keys. <laughs> How long have you been doing that? I'm going on eight years that we've lived on a boat full-time. About, about seven and a half or eight years ago, we decided to make it just like a six-month adventure. We thought, oh, we'll, we'll see what happens. I previously lived in Maine and had a house up there. But I thought, you know, it's kind of cold and snowy. And when I became an author, we could do that from anywhere. So we decided to see what life would be like on a boat. But I never. Oh, my gosh. Sick. So. So I'm making it way too romantic, I'm sure. I've never I know nothing about sailing. But what's the best thing about living on a boat and the worst thing? So the best thing is probably like the sea life. Like I can pop my head out and see dolphins and manatees and all sorts of interesting creatures. But in some ways, that's actually kind of the worst part about living on a boat. There's, if I had to pick my one horror story, it was the day that an octopus got caught in the air conditioner. And we only knew because an arm reached through. And <laughs> that's what horror movies are made out of. So the sea life is both good and frightening at the same time. <laughs> oh, my gosh. You started the story, and I, I was wondering where it was going. I didn't see that one coming. I never would have seen that one coming. Yeah, and for everybody we've talked to who's ever lived on a boat, people are just like, they've never heard of that before. But we have it on video, so we have proof it did happen. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, there, there's one more reason why I should never go sailing. Listen, Amy, you have done a lot with your career. Licensed clinical social worker, college psychology instructor, psychotherapist, best-selling author. I, I do have to talk about your TED Talk. Your TED Talk, your TEDx Talk, has 23.3 million views. The Secret of Becoming Mentally Strong. I've, I've watched it several times. I love it. And many people listening have also seen it. But what was the what was the beginning of that talk? What was the inspiration for that talk? Uh, so I guess I gave the talk shortly after my book came out. But before that, I was a full-time therapist living in Maine. And thought, 
this is great. I get to be a therapist. My sister and I had adjoining offices. She's a therapist as well. I never imagined that that I'd be here today, but I lost my mom when I was 23. So shortly after I became a therapist and then three years to the day that my mom died, I lost my 26 year old husband. And a few years after that, I was facing the loss of my father-in-law. So it was like my 20s were just one thing after the next. And I was grieving. It felt like nonstop. And just when life would start to look like it was going to be a little bit better, this I would lose somebody else. And it was one of my darkest days. I wrote an article about what mentally strong people don't do. And I found it helpful. Every day I would just wake up and read this list and say, okay, Amy, if you don't do these things today, you'll be okay. I published it on the internet thinking, you know, a handful of people would read it, but 50 million people read the list viral so many different ways with celebrities tweeting it and sharing it on social media. And one of the people who read it was a literary agent who said, you should write a book. So I had the opportunity to, within a year, I had a, my first book hit the shelves and then got invited to do this TEDx talk, which I thought, oh, that's kind of cool to do this TEDx talk. Again, never imagined that 23 million people would watch it. Your framework is interesting on, on you focus on what not to do versus what to do. How, how intentional was that? I mean, because there's always the to-do list, but you, you look at it in a, in a different way. Well, as a therapist, I was taught to build on people's strengths. So if somebody comes into my office and says, hey, here's what I have going on. My job was essentially to say, oh, wow, I'm so glad you're doing this one thing. Keep doing that. But at some point I realized if if I went to see a physical trainer and they told me to lift weights and run on the treadmill, like, yes, I'll do that all day long. If that's what you tell me is going to help me feel better. But if they didn't tell me that, hey, the all the junk food you're eating is also negating all of the hard work you're putting in, I'd be awfully upset. And I was seeing people do that in the therapy office sort of in a similar way. It was almost like they were eating a ton of junk food, but then they thought if I just have a salad too, then it somehow evens out. And they were doing that with mental health things too. Like, you know, I'll, I'll write in a gratitude journal for 10 minutes a day because that will improve my life. But they spent 23 and a half hours complaining about all the bad things in life and it just didn't even out. So that was one of the things that I really noticed was, all right, well, sometimes people who come into my therapy office who get better, it's not always about what they do. Sometimes it's about what they don't do. And when I was at the darkest point in my life, the last thing I wanted was a long list of things I should be doing. I felt so overwhelmed already that I just didn't feel like I had the time and the energy and uh, the space in my life to now say, oh, and by the way, here's 10 more things you should be doing. So I found it helpful to just say, here's your don't do list. Just don't do this stuff today and you'll and you'll be okay. And then uh, I thought, yeah, maybe this will resonate with a few people, but Again, never imagined it would resonate with so many. Yeah, it definitely did. It definitely did. So now that was your first book, uh, 13 Things Mentally Strong People Don't Do. Your second book, 13 Things Mentally Strong Parents Don't Do. Third book, 13 Things Mentally Strong Women Don't Do. Fourth book, 13 Things Strong Kids Don't Do. Fifth book is 13 Things Mentally Strong People Don't Do Workbook. So now you have your most recent book, 13 Things Mentally Strong Couples Don't Do. Why this book? Why right now? What's behind it, Amy? So I've had the amazing experience of kind of just seeing what my audience asks for, and then I write it. People are always like, what was your big plan? Well, when I wrote the first book, I really thought that was it. I'm like, oh, I'm a therapist. (laughs) I got to write a book. That's kind of cool. 
But the number one question I got from readers was, how do we raise mentally strong kids? So then I was like, all right, I could write a kid's book or I could write the one for parents. So I wrote the parenting version first. And then all these readers kept saying, well, what does it look like to be a strong woman? Because we had lots of examples of like Navy SEALs and elite athletes who oh, are true. Were commonly men. So that led to the women's book. So by the time I had number five come out, I started hearing from a lot of people that were saying things like, I could be stronger if it weren't for my relationship or if my partner would just change, my life would be so much easier. And that was certainly something I've heard often in my therapy office, too, from people who say, you know, I could be happier if my partner didn't have a certain bad habit or I feel like if I were mentally stronger, my relationship would get better. So I knew it was time to say, yeah, you're right. Because in the past, mm. I've always focused on us as individuals, but your relationships, especially your romantic relationship is going to have the biggest impact on your mental strength. So I really wanted to write one about couples. And of course, coming out of the pandemic, some couples are like, wow, we're closer than ever. And other couples are saying we're struggling more than we ever yeah. had. So I just felt like it was a good time to create the couple's book. One of the points that came through the book, I was surprised by, because I'm still getting into the framework of what not to do versus what to do. But uh, you make the point that when people read this book or when they focus here, that the change, when the change can happen for themselves and when, when the change happens within themselves, that also can strengthen the relationship. It's not always what the other person is doing or isn't doing. Could you piece that together for me and what you see day to day? Yeah, as a couples therapist, a lot of people would come into my office and say, you know, they would drag their partner in basically and say, listen <laughs> to what they're doing and they're doing things wrong. Can you please like side with me and tell tell them to stop doing this or that they need to change their ways? But if somebody doesn't want to change and you try to force them, it doesn't work. We can't make anybody do anything different. And sometimes in the short term, somebody might make an adjustment or two just to get you to stop nagging them or to make you happy but it usually doesn't stick. And so I really wanted people to know I've worked with so many people over the years where quite often I never even met their partner. They might not be able to get their partner in the door to even start therapy, but we were able to change their relationship because the person in front of me was able to create some positive change. And I say it's a lot like a dance. If you change your dance steps, your mm -hmm. partner just naturally changes theirs. So while you can't force them to change their steps, go ahead and focus on what you can change, which is the way that you're acting, the way that you're behaving and the things that you're doing. And the people around you will respond to the way that you're acting. So sometimes people would say, gosh, you know, I, I get mad and I raise my voice or I tend to... Uh, come back with some comments to my partner that are kind of rude, or I avoid certain topics. So we'd say, oh, well, let's see what we can do differently. And when you start behaving differently, I guarantee your partner will too. That's a great point. And that dance metaphor, I can really see that. This is not the book to read it and say, aha, here's what you're not doing. And that never really ends well, correct? Correct. I didn't want anybody to read it and then just think that like, this is reinforcement that my partner's not mentally strong enough because they're doing number two, number eight, and number 12. I just really wanted people to know we all do these things sometimes. And while you can't force your partner to do anything differently, you can certainly say, I'm going to focus on what I'm doing and how I'm going to yeah. change. Well, another great, great thing I picked up, though, you have interviews with other relationship experts with their latest research as well. You're going deep and getting a really an interactive type experience, aren't, aren't you? Yeah, I really wanted to make it uh, not, again, I didn't want to lecture people of stop doing this and here's why. I wanted to make sure that people could say, ah, oh, I see some of these things in myself. 
because what often happens with all of my books is somebody will say, oh, I don't really struggle with that thing. And then they'll come across a quiz or they'll read the chapter and they'll say, oh, that kind of creeps up in my life maybe more than I thought that it did. And then, of course, there's that uncomfortable situation. Let's say you notice you're doing something. How do you talk about it with your partner? So I wanted to give people like exact scripts you could use and things you can say and exercises that you can apply. And then this was the first book where I interviewed other experts. But I wanted to know, like, what are other therapists seeing around the country these days? Because my practice was limited to either rural Maine or the Florida Keys. So I wanted to know like, mm-hmm. what are other people seeing? And especially post COVID, what kinds of things are going on and what is their research revealed or what sort of anecdotal stories do they have that they can share? Um, and I was glad that I did because it was fun to to talk to all of them as well. What were maybe one or two things that you learned from those experts uh, as you were interviewing them about couples and relationships? So it seems like all of them have uh, various strategies that they use to to go ahead and get people to really connect, because that's one of the things people come into our offices and they're often right on the brink of divorce or they're just feeling pretty hopeless. So Lori Gottlieb, one of the therapists that I talked to, she wrote the book, uh, Maybe You Should Talk to Someone. And one of her strategies was to spend five minutes and you dance with your partner. And it was a way for people to just connect with one another or they find something that they want to do together just for a couple of minutes. And it's a a short little exercise that people would then be like, okay, we can take five minutes to do something and and do something fun where there's no pressure, no stress to say like we have an agenda or anything like that. And how, how she was seeing results from that. So it was often those little things when I would talk to experts or they were like, you know, I, I try this one little thing with people and here's the results that I'm seeing. How did you narrow down on these particular 13? We're going to go into a couple of them, but but how did you narrow that list down? I looked at the the biggest problems that I was seeing um, as a therapist, like the most common ones that seemed to just keep people stuck so that no matter what they were doing, like they'd say, oh, we, we have date night. A lot of people hear that you're supposed to have date night, but like if they were doing these other things, your date night doesn't matter. So I really wanted to just pinpoint the biggest obstacles I was seeing in my therapy office that I think are really holding people back from enjoying the closest and best and happiest relationship that they could. There it is again, a really big takeaway in all areas of life. But when you have a great habits, you can have these habits like going, like you brought it up to physical strength. You can go to the gym all day long and just really work on that. But if you're eating poorly, then that just negates it all. And so I love how you're just stepping right into that and reminding us that we may have some good habits, but we also, all of us, have some habits that tend to derail us. Am I close? You you hit the nail on the head right there. I think all of us could say, and what's the worst habit that I still have and how can I get rid of that thing? I got a long list. I got more than 13. I can tell you that. Okay, so here's, here's a few right now. Uh, chapter one, they don't ignore their problems. Chapter two, they don't keep secrets. You also have a chapter on boundaries and uh, they don't blame each other. And this is not a fair question, but I'm just curious. What is the one or two chapters or they don't statements that really resonates the most with you? If you just had to pick one or two, and let's just talk about that. I would say boundaries. It's certainly, yep. Uh, It seems to be news to people that that it's okay (laughs) to, to have boundaries with your partner, but also you and your partner, it is... 100% uh, up to you guys to set 
boundaries with the outside world, kind of like a fence that you're going to put around your house to protect yourself from other people. So the boundaries chapter and the other one that seems to be resonating the most with my readers so far is the chapter about not using your emotions as weapons. So let's talk about boundaries. What does okay. what do couples do or what does a life look like without a lot of boundaries? That's such a bad question, but I think you know what I'm asking. I, I got you. A lot of people become so enmeshed in their relationship that they forget. Like it's okay to have certain boundaries with your partner. So you might say, you know, I get home from work. I'm kind of stressed out. I'm going to go for a walk around the block and I'm not going to bring my phone with me. Like that's a hundred percent okay to do. But a lot of people are like, well, my partner would get mad at me if I didn't have my phone on me. So I'm going to take it with me. Or if my partner texts me throughout the day, because this is a big one too, that sometimes people have different expectations on how often they're going to communicate. And so one partner maybe has a job where they can send text messages every hour. So they're texting various things like, don't forget to pick up the milk or, hey, look at this funny meme I just found. And the other person might feel like that's really intrusive in their day, yet they never have a conversation about the fact that like, I can't respond to you or I'm not going to reply to you unless there's an emergency. So sometimes people feel almost burdened by that. Like they feel like they have to respond. So it's really important to set boundaries with your partner. You have a right to privacy. You can say, gee, when I uh, am going out with my friends, I don't want to come home and tell you what I talk to my friends about. Like that's wow. none of your business or I'm going to have some conversations with other people that don't involve you. But then you also need boundaries with, with the outside world. In-laws are the biggest issue. People probably come to therapy about saying, I can't stand my mother-in-law or my father-in-law is always giving us unwanted advice or they show up unannounced or they criticize our parenting. And it's so important for couples to get together and decide, like, what are our boundaries? What rules do we want to have? Like, you have to call before you stop by, or you can't criticize our parenting in front of the kids, or we don't want you to undermine us by going behind our backs and, and doing X, Y, or Z, or we're not going to tell our parents about our financial issues. Wow. And when couples come together and set those sorts of boundaries, then they become much more like a team who's working together rather than potentially working against each other. But you mentioned that it was almost like, a, I'm inferring here, a bit of a surprise for people that they can actually set boundaries. And I imagine for a lot of people, this is difficult to do, though. I mean, I'm thinking about myself. It would be difficult for me to, to get into some of those kind of conversations. Yes, it's tough for people to, to actually set some boundaries. It is. I think a lot of people are like, well, now how do I set it? I haven't set a boundary for the past yeah. years. So how do I suddenly draw this line in the sand now? But it's really about you and it's not about punishing the other person or anything like that. Instead, you just want to make it clear like, gee, I've, I've been working on some things with myself lately and I've decided that it's best for me if I and then you can fill in the blank with it's best if I don't loan if we don't loan out our car anymore or if we don't loan people money or if we uh, set a rule. And sometimes it's even boundaries with your kids. Maybe you're not going to let them sleep in the bed anymore because that's affecting your relationship. You can say, you know, we've decided that we're going to have this new rule and here's what it is. Uh, and for some people, that's tough to do, but it can be really freeing once you stick to a boundary as well. You know, in your TED Talk, I'm drawing a link here. I'm not sure if it's if this if there is a link or not. What I picked up in your TED Talk, it had to do with uh, your own power and don't don't give away your power or own your power. Is there a link there between the these principles like setting boundaries and making sure that you then have power and you own that? Am I, am I close? You are, because it's really common for us to be like, oh, my, I'm going to pick on mother-in-laws, but my mother-in-law's 
ruining my life. She has to show up and complain about stuff all the time. Well, it's your house, your rules. You can certainly say, actually, no, we're, we're going to do something different today, or I don't appreciate it when you do X, Y, or Z, or I'm not going to allow you to do something. And so taking back our power sometimes does involve setting a boundary with somebody else and realizing it's it's up to me to make these decisions about my life. And if I don't like what's going on, I can either fix how I feel about it or I can fix the problem. And sometimes fixing the problem means setting a boundary. Mm, that is a really great point. And the way, you, the way you articulate it too makes a lot of sense. How about the other one that you mentioned about they don't use their emotions as weapons? What does it look like using emotions as weapons? So this is something where maybe you bring up an uncomfortable subject with your partner. So they know if they begin to cry, you're going to stop talking. So they, they begin to cry because they don't want to have this conversation. Or maybe, you know, if you raise your voice, your partner's going to back down and say, okay, fine, we don't have to do whatever it was I suggested. Uh, so in these cases, I was seeing a lot of clients who would say, you know, it's, I can't help it that I lose my temper. But they weren't really like losing their temper. They were using it more of as a strategy to get out of doing something or to stop a certain conversation. And anxiety is another common one where people would say, oh, I can't go to your family function because, you know, I have anxiety. And it might be true that they had anxiety. However, they really weren't working on their anxiety or they weren't interested in working through the difficulties or even coming up with a plan of like, all right, we'll leave early if I struggle. They just weren't interested in it because they wanted to use the anxiety as a reason to not do the things that they wanted to do. So I really included this chapter just as a way for people to know, like whatever you feel is okay. And there are lots of healthy ways to express your emotions. But it becomes unhealthy when we use it as a strategy to manipulate our partner. And for some people, that was kind of a surprise to say, well, I, I can't help it that I start to cry. Well, can you? And even if you're sad because your partner's bringing up a difficult subject, how do you then go back and still talk about it? Because a lot of problems get swept under the rug because people are like, I don't bring it up because my partner gets mad every time I do. So we just haven't talked about it for a decade, even though this problem still exists. And so I wanted couples to know, just because somebody's upset or it's difficult to talk about, we don't want you to escape those difficult feelings. You can still work through them and hopefully do it as a team. Couples then can, can go through it if they're doing it together, but they can really identify some of these things that they choose to work on, correct? Yeah. So, I mean, ideally it would be great if couples sat down and read the book together. I'm going to guess that that's not going to happen in most cases. I'm going right. to guess that one person in the relationship is going to be more motivated than the other. And they may, be, may have a partner who has zero interest in, in even knowing what's in the book, but that's okay too, which is why every chapter has a section in it. Like, if you struggle with this problem, here's what you can do. If your partner struggles, here's what you can do. <laughs> partner thinks you struggle with it, here's what you can do. And if you both struggle with it, here's a strategy. Because I think the approach is going to be different, whether you think it's you who has the problem or it's your partner who has the problem. Yeah. You're very plain spoken, which I, I really appreciate, which is a reason why I think your message breaks through so much. What is it that you would hope couples would think or do differently as a result of this, your sixth book? My goodness. So my hope would be that uh, people would just be more aware of like, okay, we have a couple of bad habits. Like we communicate with disrespect. Maybe it's only 10% <laughs> of the time, but it's still a big enough issue that we sh I really want to work on not doing that. And I think when people make that conscious decision, like I'm going to work on addressing this issue, 
like it could be something small. Like, again, I'm just, I'm not going to roll my eyes or when my partner talks to me, I'm going to look up from my phone instead of those little things can make a huge difference in the quality of somebody's relationship. So my hope is that people will find those little tips, those little tricks, and they'll say, you know, I almost minimized this or I almost didn't even try it because it sounded too simple. But when I did it, we realized like, yeah, that actually makes a huge difference in the overall quality of our relationship. It's really interesting. So just these small things, you're seeing these small little changes can have really big impact. They can. And I think couples often assume like our problems are too big and we can't possibly solve them. Or sometimes people are like trying to solve a problem that can't be solved. If you are interested in having one kid and your partner is interested in having four, like, what do you do? Compromise? Not so much because then neither of you might be happy, but but there are ways to say, okay, I'm going to accept some of our differences and we don't have to agree on everything, but how do we not become bitter moving forward? Because one of the things I would see is so many couples would just be kind of resentful and bitter. And over the years, uh, they had this seething anger and it came out in so many ways. And then they would kind of come to the conclusion that there's no hope for us. But there's so many ways couples can still like reconnect and rekindle their relationship and then feel really good about who they're with. And when you are happy with not just who you are, but also the person you're with. There's so many things in life that just become so much easier and joyful and happy because you've got a teammate who's by your side. Game changer. What do you see are some of the, the things that are really facing couples today that are putting a lot of stress on relationship? Uh, you know, I would say a couple of things. One would be technology, that it's affecting mm. relationships in so many ways and not enough people are talking about it. So I'm seeing everything from... You know, Jealousy over social media, where somebody says, you know, like, why are you talking to this person on social media? And sometimes it's, it is like the secrecy on social media too, where somebody says, you know, suddenly I could reach out to all of my exes because they're easy to find and they start having secret conversations. But it's also the idea when it comes to the internet and social media is suddenly people feel like there's an endless list of options, sort of like the grass is greener on the other side, where there are all these dating sites where you could find thousands of people who in your community who are looking for a date. And I find so many people then are like, oh, there's a lot of other attractive options. Maybe I'd be happier if, and kind of entertain those thoughts instead of working on their relationship. So there's a lot of ways I think technology has made a stable, committed relationship a lot more challenging. And then also, again, that communication between couples with text messages and um, knowing how do you communicate in today's world where so many people are communicating via phones and text messages as opposed to face-to-face. -face. So I'd say that's a big hurdle these days. But another one lately has been the financial issues. So many people are saying, you know, our the state of the economy and we were stable for a while and now we're really struggling and the, we thought we had enough for retirement. Now we're questioning that. Oh boy. And differences in opinion on how much you should save and how much you should spend. And those things often crop up in everyday conversations and resentments are building because one person's still spending and the other person isn't. And they have different ideas about, can we afford to go on vacation next year or not? Or uh, how much money do you need to have stockpiled in any given moment versus is it okay to spend it? So I see a lot of that these days too. Boy, so how would how would your new book then help with some of those discussions? 13 Things Mentally Strong Couples Don't Do. So my book really gets into issues like 
privacy. What's okay to have that you might keep private versus what you should be talking to your partner about. I've got scripts in there about how do you tackle tough subjects? How can you make sure that when you're talking about something that you do stay respectful, that you really listen to the other person? How do you manage conflict? How do you negotiate when it makes sense to negotiate? But also, when do you not want to compromise? And and how can you work together, even when you're frustrated, even when you're struggling with something or you disagree with one another? How can you still stay connected in all of that? So my hope is that all the chapters contain exercises that if somebody's dealing with something very specific, say of, of some financial struggles, that they might find exercises in several of the chapters that they can still use right in the moment. This book, though, also talks about um, about how if someone is not in a safe situation, that this is not necessarily the cure-all for something like that. And you kind of draw a line there. If you don't mind, just articulate that. I think it's a really important point. I wanted to draw the line and make it clear that if you're in an abusive relationship, this book isn't going to fix it. Because sometimes people come into my therapy office thinking, if I just had the mental strength to stick around a little longer, if I just keep showing this person a little more unconditional, positive love and positive regard, then somehow they'll change, right? And I don't don't want anybody to think that if they're in an abusive relationship that they need to stick it out longer or that it's a sign of weakness if you end it. I try to make it abundantly clear. I don't think all couples should stay together just for the sake of it. I think there are plenty of situations where for somebody's health and well-being, sometimes it's the kids' uh, mental health or their overall well-being. Sometimes it's the, the couples themselves. But if the relationship is toxic, you might decide to just go your go your separate ways. Uh, Amy, what is the best way to follow you and stay in touch with all the cool projects that you are up to? Uh, probably my website, which is Amy Morin, LCSW, as in licensed clinical social worker.com. And on there, we've got a link to my podcast, which is called Mentally Stronger, links to my books and uh, information on my TEDx talk as well. At the end of your TEDx talk, as if you didn't know, but this is for everyone else, you asked a couple of questions. What bad habits are holding you back? And the second question is, what's one small step you could take right here, right now? So now it's time for the I Dare You Challenge, Amy. I ask all of my guests at the end of the podcast, what's the one thing, one thing that maybe we should do or try to live a better life? What do you think? Uh, You know, I think realizing that your brain lies to you sometimes and you don't have to believe everything that you think. So when your brain tells you like, oh, you can't do that or that's not possible, just take a step back and say, what's another way to look at this problem? Uh, what's another thing I could tell myself? And you realize you definitely don't have to believe everything that you think. Your brain will underestimate you sometimes. It will tell you that you can't do things that you can because it's trying to keep you safe and comfortable. But it's often when we challenge ourselves to do things that are tough, things that we didn't think we could. That's where the the best things in life are often waiting for us over there. It's a great point. It's a great challenge. Now, you've done a lot of interviews. Is there one point about this book that you really want to make sure that that people know about? Or maybe it's a question that I have not asked. What do you think? You know, I think probably a misconception about this book is that you have to have a bad relationship in order to gain anything from reading this book. But that's definitely not the case. I think if you have a good relationship, all the more better to read this book because who wants just a good relationship? We might take it to great. Or even if you think, gosh, we have the most amazing relationship ever. Life is weird and it will throw you some curveballs. And I guarantee down the road, you might encounter something and then you might struggle a little bit, whether it's a financial challenge, some sort of a hardship or an illness. 
So you want to make sure that you're prepared uh, for whatever life throws your way. So my hope is that uh, even couples who say we're doing pretty well, will still find some value in reading the book as well. That's a great, great point. You know, I've been married for 33 years now and the set boundaries chapter really, really resonated with me because I really struggle with that. I struggle with that in personal life and professional life. That one chapter is going to help me in so many ways change how I operate that is only going to strengthen our marriage. So I think you hit that point uh, spot on. Oh, I'm thrilled to hear that. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. All right, Amy. So you are also a podcast host, wildly successful podcast. And tell me the name then of your podcast. It's called Mentally Stronger with Therapist Amy Morin. Okay. So you've got a combination of guests, but also you have solo episodes. You're doing this thing consistently, which is tough to do. Why are you doing the podcast? Because that's no small feat. Congratulations. Yeah. As you know, as a podcast host, it's much more difficult than it seems, right? When you listen to a podcast, it sounds like somebody turned on the mic for 20 minutes, they talked and that was it. (laughs) That is really not where the real work comes in, is it? No. I guess for me, because I thought, you know, I, I put so much content out there with articles and books, but sometimes it's like, uh, I just wanted to have more like a better personal relationship, I think. And talking to people, I think felt more, um, like I was able to develop more of a relationship with my listeners by telling them more stories, but I also wanted to interview some people, some guests too, to get their stories. Like, how do you stay mentally strong and what helps you in your life? So it wasn't just my perspective, but I was adding a value from other people who could share their experiences as well. It's good. It is a lot of work, but also I can tell you have a lot of fun doing that podcast and it really comes through in the episode. So uh, congratulations. And again, thank you again for being part of this podcast and everyone check out her podcast after you binge listen to everything on I Dare You. Is that okay, Amy? Yeah, that seems reasonable to me. So Amy, this has been a lot of fun. Uh, Thank you so much for being on this podcast. You've given us a lot to think about and I just love how you're so committed. I mean, your whole, your vocation and your passion is helping couples live a better life. And so thanks again for sharing this in the podcast. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Okay, that was Amy Morin, episode 102. What did you take away from that interview? What's the one thing that you plan on doing differently or implementing in your life in this brand new year? I talked about the interview. I'm going to focus in on on boundaries, establishing some of those boundaries. It's going to help me in so many areas of my life, including my relationships not only my marriage, but also in other aspects of my life. And so that's where I'm going to focus. How about for you? At the very end of Amy's TED Talk, she asked two questions to the audience. And I'm going to ask the same to you. What bad habits are holding you back? And then what's one small step you could take right here, right now? And if you've been listening to the podcast, you know that I'm obsessed with habits and consistent habits, in part because I need to work on it, not because I have it all figured out. But this conversation with Amy is another reminder about how we can have great habits, but there's always a couple that are going to derail us. And the more that we can always focus on becoming better than yesterday, refining habits, continually adapting, making changes, it's healthy to do. And it's only going to help us as we move closer to our goal. So now that you listen, who are you thinking of that might benefit from this type of a conversation? Take the step now. Share this episode with them. Now, as a reminder, every Friday, I have an email that I send out giving you some tips and hints you can put into practice in your current week. And I usually pull from content in the podcast episodes. I have a lot of fun putting it together. If that sounds of interest to you and you want to be part of that weekly email, go to www.idareupod.com. Go to the bottom, put in your email address, and you're in. 
I promise not to abuse the privilege. I think you'll find some high value to this email. It's a quick read, but something that's actionable you can put into practice right away. And thank you again for tuning in. You have so many options and you're here every week on the I Dare You podcast, and I appreciate that. Make sure you join us on Instagram at I Dare You Pod, the best way to communicate with me. And also great content, including video snippets of these interviews, including the one you just heard with Amy. And get ready for episode 103 next week. Another great one is queued up. And I'll see you back here next week on the I Dare You podcast. I'll see you then.